Welcome to Made in Australia, Ball Played's deep dive into the Australian games industry where we focus on an Australian-based studio and their upcoming game. Welcome back to Made in Australia, Australia's podcast about the Australian games industry. I am Zach Jackson and today, very exciting, I am joined by Craig Ritchie of a co-founder of Drop Bear Bites and game director of Broken Roads. Craig, lovely to have you here today. Cool. Thanks for the invite. No worries. It's been a uh, it's been a couple of years in the making. I, I remember sliding into those DMs on uh, Twitter a few years back, uh, and here we are. Uh, it's it. so it's great to have you on board and so close to the launch of Broken Roads. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. It, it definitely has been a journey. Um, Pax wrapped up a couple of weeks ago, and insane to think it was actually four years since we last showed off the game. Um, you know, since we first showed off the game, since we last showed it at PAX, and just going, wow, like a lot has happened in that time, and we are now three weeks away from launch. It's incredible. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, I remember the first PAX, uh, and it wasn't even playable. It was just like a monitor, I think, with like a trailer that played through, and some devs were like kind of talking through like the ideas. Yeah, we, uh, we, you- we had the trailer looping on the TV, and then we had like a proof of concept that we weren't comfortable people having hands yeah. on with. But you could walk <laughs> around, you could like fire dialogue, you know, you couldn't travel anywhere. It was, it was really just uh, selling the promise, you know, showing off what we planned to do and the art style and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, even uh, back then, I think we were all of uh, well played that saw it there were very excited by it and, and were very, very excited to get our hands on it in a couple of weeks. So, for those who don't know what Broken Roads is, what, what is Broken Roads? Well, it's, it's sort of our love letter to the old school role-playing games that we uh, you know, absolutely loved and poured so many hours into as we were growing up. Um, the, the, I'd say the key inspiration is Fallout 1 and 2 and then the Baldur's Gate games. It's the isometric, traditional CRPG, you know, party-based um adventure and you know our our thing is it's in a post-apocalyptic future western australia uh it's also got our own unique take on alignment and morality with the moral compass that it, it has a worldview that just and rotates depending upon your decisions and sort of limits a character but it does uh, allow them to kind of shift their alignments somewhat more realistically uh, so we're really proud of how, how that's come along. And then the whole thing is based on, I would say, the majority, 90 plus percent authentic locations in Western Australia, real buildings, real streets, real landmarks. Um, so people who know these towns and places in, in the Wheat Belt in WA have already started saying, hey, I, I know that tower. I know that building. I know that street. Um, so that, that's also another really cool thing that's, that especially came out of PAX recently was uh, that we sort of nailed some of the authenticity we've been going for. Yeah, the vibe. Uh, I mean, it, even back a couple of years ago uh, or even last year when we played it at PAX as well, like you could definitely feel that Aussie flavor in there. And it, and it looks, I mean, not that I've been to the Outback much, but it kind of, you know, it definitely feels and looks like the Outback. I've, I've got to ask though, why why WA? Was there any particular reason why you chose WA and, and that particular area of uh, WA? Yeah, look, it's it started off, it was going to be a road trip across the entirety of Australia. So it was going to be starting in Perth, 
um, going across the Nullarbor, through SA, through parts of Victoria, up through New South Wales, and it was going to end in the Daintree in you know, far north Queensland. That was when it was a slightly different style of game. It was going to be like a road trip with RPG elements, resource management, and uh, random encounters, like a little bit of Oregon Trail with, with tactical combat. Um, but we, we just kept diving into the characters, the story, the world, the towns, myself and, and Jethro, my co-founder, realized, hey, you know what, <laughs> we're actually going so deep into this. We're cutting out this resource management in favor of additional uh, character depth and, and story and so on. Like, let's toss this idea out, narrow the scope to just WA and really make um, that traditional CRPG that we we both love and both of our favorite game of all time is, is Baldur's Gate 2 to sort of give you an idea of, of the major inspiration and the kind of feel we're going for of this of this world that reacts to you and is realistic and um, you know realistic within the the sci-fi story of a post-apocalyptic future but it, it stopped being this road trip across the country and it became this WA and a bit of nullable focus thing and even that there was so much right there that we were like Let's just do this wheat belt section, you know, kind of Brookton through Kalgoorlie and a bit north and south and that sort of area. There was already more than than we could could cover. Uh, so it started off kind of arbitrarily this whole journey and then it just got narrowed down. You know, we've taken a few trips. I've been over three times now to to most of the areas in the game over a, a, a bunch of different trips over there taken thousands of photos by this point and also seen some things from going over there that you don't see in google maps and google street view and so on um so yeah that that's why that particular area it just lends itself so well to being post-apocalyptic as well uh news stories and events that have come out over the last few years have also you know we've, we've said many times wow this game writes itself because if something will happen <laughs> with a gold mine or something will happen in town there or whatever that just is a gee this this really suits us let's Let's reference this, or let's use that location, or something like mm. that. With uh, when you were when when you were doing your research, uh, did you spend much time conversing with the locals and getting kind of a feel for almost like its own lingo or you know like language and just tales that that you could tell about like the history of this of of these these areas? Yeah, so we did a a range of online stuff, and then obviously speaking to people in person when, when we were there. I don't remember the exact site now, but one of the libraries, I think it was in WA, has like an online archive of newspapers going back well over 100 years, I think, of, of all these small town gazettes and rags and newspapers and whatever from Perth through to many of the exact towns in the game. So we, we would read old stories, we would name you know, have, have names of characters that alluded to that. We would uh, make sure that we included a, a, this reference or this picture or that whatever in, in the game itself. And then obviously going to WA, um, see, I think the first, the first trip, which was in 2019, I would go to a bunch of the pubs actually and just talk to the, <laughs> the bar staff or talk to some of the people around or talk to the, you know, hotel owner or... Uh, just walk around the town and, and see what's going on. Go into a um, a cafe and have a, a coffee and just chat to the people there. Sometimes just in general, sometimes telling them exactly 
why I'm there and what I'm doing. And most people were really receptive and super interested and, you know, curious what a, a game set here, like what, um, yeah. So it, it was really cool. You know, hearing what is important to people is something that you're not going to get from Googling, you know, so you talk to this person and they quickly steer the conversation to, oh, you know, all these things going on, it's affecting the sheep farming. You know, the next person is, ah, oh, the, the weather or, the, you know, the, the, the rain or whatever it is. And then you begin to get a feel for like what, what matters to these people, what matters to this part of the world um, that, that yeah, like I said, that you wouldn't get just from, uh, from, from reading about it online. So you, you do have to do that boots on the ground style research yeah. if you do want to, um, you know, try and be as authentic to a location as possible. Is that um, something that you quite enjoy? Like, like doing like a lot of the researching for a project? I mean, it's it's fun. It's definitely interesting. That's one of the most fun parts of the pre-production uh, period. And then, you know, when you're refining things later, you know, because we have been multiple times to get, oh, we've never been here. We need to take photos. Or, oh, we've got to actually speak to, um, you know, this Aboriginal representative or, or so on from, let's say wave rock or the area around Meriden or whatever it is like absolutely it's it's super fun because you're just diving in and you you're at this creative thing swirling around tons of ideas before you have to start throwing away the ones that won't make it in the game uh it's sort of like the world building period which is kind of interesting when you're combining well how do we keep it authentically australian throw in our own flavor make it fun have you know quests and adventures and characters that are really going to engage players but then when somebody who's from the region or from the area or from a specific town looks at it and goes like wow that's so cool they got that statue or the brookton gazebo or the kalgoorlie bitter tower in meriden like these are things that people have have commented on uh that's that's just awesome makes us feel like yep we we did a good job you'll never capture everything you'll never satisfy everyone but if you can go yep hey man we we did our best effort attempt here um enjoyed it reading about you know so and so spent the night in jail because he got too drunk at the local boxing match you know stories like that from i don't know late 1800s newspapers and stuff that's that's really really cool you know so yeah definitely enjoyed because it's set in australia and i guess we have a um troubled history uh i guess how how did you approach that sort of cultural sensitivity um I guess, especially from that area of Australia. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, look, started out with um, a friend here from the Narana Aboriginal Cultural Centre just up the road where I just went around one day and said, hey, this is, this is what I'm doing. Um, I'm, at the time, I'd only been in Australia like three years or something. I'm originally from South Africa. I said, there's, there's just no way that I'll be able to do this like even attempt to do it myself. Like I need some input. I need to do this correctly, uh, respectfully, trying to get it as authentic as we can. I reached out to people on LinkedIn. I searched for people that you know are either involved in games or, or uh, technology in New South Wales and Victoria, primarily. You know, just just that's where the search took me, and I got very different responses depending on. The individual so i had one person say don't even try it you're not going to be able to get it right no matter how hard you you know the effort you put in someone's always going to be unhappy or you're not going to do it correctly 
so just don't include indigenous people at all. So I said, you know, then it can't really be authentically Australian. He said, yep, like that's, that's a challenge. And I was like, wow, pretty, you know, pretty crestfallen to hear that. But then literally the very next person that I spoke to said, oh, this is awesome. Just like, thanks so much for even trying to include us. Um, put whatever you want in, just normalize us through including us and um, you know, you can send me some of the text or we can look at some screenshots or whatever and, and you know, you write it and, and we'll approve it or we can help you write it, you know, just completely the opposite reaction and then a range in between where it's like, yep, you can, you know, please talk about this. You can talk about, say, symbols you might see or a dance that we might do, but don't try and recreate it in the game. Like don't include the symbol in the game or don't include this okay. action in the game just talk about it in text and i was like you know cool if, if you we've got somebody along the way to to help make sure that we are you know not there's there's obviously going out of your way to try and offend and do you know include content that's insensitive and i mean obviously we're not trying to do that there's also just making sure that you're not your ignorance isn't leading to uh, mm. offense as well and then there's just well how can we possibly try and tell authentic stories and include indigenous people if we don't have them on the team or writing or you know at least involved in a, in a full approval process so we've had a few indigenous team members over the years uh, more recently we've been working with Carla Hart she's in uh, WA uh, she is a Noongar woman who has been involved pretty closely with the writing team end to end every single character every conversation every map that as in game scene that includes um, any indigenous content will have she, she'll have played it or watched us play it or read the text you know every, she will get an email of all of the dialogue or she sits on a co-writing call with our writing team where it's literally like going through words and, and how would you say this? Oh, no, I'll change it this way. Or, you know, I wouldn't actually say that. Here's where I would put in, um, you know, this phrase or this terminology or whatever. And then we, we can include that in the, I don't, haven't really mentioned this yet, but we've got a, a, a feature that a lot of people really liked where when you mouse over Australian slang, it gives you a little definition. So, you know, we might say something, like a character might, I don't know, reckon, which isn't really the most slang word, but whatever, you move your mouse over it and it'll explain to um, non-Australians, like, what is the slang? Same feature works for um, Noongar words as well. So you can get cool. you can get that uh, either in the dialogue moment when you mouse over it, or we've got a full cyclopedia as well that explains terminology. So, yeah, it's it's been, it's been a process. You know, we, I can quite proudly and confidently say hey we did a best effort here we, you know we really mm. tried we really genuinely spoke to a bunch of people we were talking to um, aboriginal cultural educator before any public anything went public before the game was written before the, the code was even in and this was like one of the very first things in 2019 that we did um so yeah it's not it's not that we went out with a mission of Hey, let's let's do the the greatest you know indigenous content in a video game ever or anything like that or let's um, let's pat ourselves on the back for our fantastic efforts. It's far more of how do we navigate a very sensitive 
area that we're pretty committed not to exclude, um, how do we navigate the sensitive area knowing we will almost certainly, no matter how hard we try, we will end up with something that somebody doesn't like or the way we've gone about it or something like that. Uh, and we have the backing of numerous people in the area who appreciate that we've, you know, we've put in some effort or we have consulted with some elders or we have, um, you know, we've used reference images or, or, or language fully with approval, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's been, I've learned a lot. I've learned a hell of a lot and it has been a challenge, but I, uh, you know, it's also been rewarding when we hear the positive feedback from um, indigenous players or writers or contributors to the project. And I, I really just hope that people look at it as the good faith attempt it was to respectfully include Noongar culture uh, in our game. I think, I think you're right. I think you couldn't make this game uh, authentically Australian without including uh, Indigenous people. Yeah. It's just, yeah, I just Simple. don't think it would be, it wouldn't uh, be the same. Um, <clears throat> but on the whole being Australian bit and, and the slang, how, uh, how much fun was it making this as Aussie as, um, you know, did you kind of, and you kind of mentioned that, that you're from South Africa, I guess, how much about Australian culture just in general did you kind of learn from from developing this this game? Uh, well, look, quite a bit, actually. We've got a, a team spread around the country as well, you know, learning how different uh, Perth slang might be to Rockhampton slang to, you know, what I hear down in Torquay and the way people might address things in Melbourne versus Sydney and so on. So definitely learned a few. So just on that, a very, 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 very quick question in the game. Is it Palmer or Palmy? <laughs> <laughs> I want to have a, a, a fight about that in the game, but I, I believe it's Palmer. Uh, what is here? We go. There we go. There we go. There we go. Yep. Oh, yeah, but please, yep. please. No, I'm pretty me. sure that's, that somebody will call it a Palmy or you could have a fight. And then uh, when you get to the bottom of like, what, why are you attacking each other? It's because he called it a Palmy. You know, we, we, take, <laughs> we, we take the piss out of a lot of things. Um, it's been really fun. I, I bought a book on Aussie lingo, like, you know, one of those fun dictionary style glossary yeah. of Aussie lingo. And it's like words I've never heard. So I speak to somebody in the team and say like, what is this? Have you, and like, no one's ever heard of it. So it must be some super <laughs> old slang. Uh, I went to Bogan Bingo, which was awesome. And I learned the phrase sex trophies is okay. children. So I was like, cool, I'm going <laughs> to, we're going to have to refer to some kids somewhere in the game as sex trophies. Um, I mean, just all over the place, just talking to people on the team, just watching Aussie gold hunters or Outback Opal hunters, I think it's called, um, seeing how those people talk as well. Just, yeah. And, and not leaning too far into crocodile dundee you know i think a lot of people are expecting that I've, I've even had some people say oh it wasn't as much of that as we thought you know maybe that is just more of a stereotype and yep but it certainly is um but no it's it's been fun getting that mix because we've got a range of characters there's over 200 characters in the game um and some of them talk pretty awkward some of them are trying to be posh some of them are you know uh middle of the road so yeah we try to try to encompass it all is there a, a saying 
or a phrase or or a word that you that you like the most that that you've learned? Um, Jesus, there's, there's been a bunch. I'm trying to think. Like you said, taking the piss. <laughs> well that that's also like you you'll hear that in the uk you'll hear that in south africa yeah see that there's a bunch of things okay. where, where people might assume hey let's let's include this word reckon and it's like well you know we we say that in south africa people understand it in america it yeah. may have originated here but it's definitely um you know permeated further but you know christmas christmas has an insult for a redhead ranger you know, there's a good um, legend in his own lunchbox. There's been a couple yep. that are definitely different. Like, you know, somebody did say, oh, what about we're not here to fuck spiders? And I was like, yep. I actually heard that in South Africa before as well. It may well really? have been from somebody who'd heard it here and brought it back and imported it. But yeah, right. um, but that's a pretty good one as well. So there, there's so many. I don't even know how many entries our cyclopedia has at the moment. Um but yeah, there's, there's just so many. It's good. Nice. So it is a video game and, and you've, you've taken some creative liberties with it. Are you, do we know or is it safer later on in the game why uh, we are in a post-apocalyptic world? Yeah, it's, it's told right in the intro. It's not a secret. It was basically human beings from, I don't know, last couple decades and now forward at every opportunity to make a decision uh made the worst possible decision so that's with regards to how we handle the environment and climate change who we voted as our leaders <laughs> how we handled um you know issues of of disagreement on divisive topics and basically every single point we went the world got more and more and more divided there was a new uh, American Civil War, and the world got split into a new axis and allies, basically. There was a, uh, a union, a global union of the, you know, sort of spearheaded by the far left and a, another global union spearheaded by the far right. And the world had to pick sides because we entered into a third world war and uh, that resulted in the bombing of most of the world's major cities. And that included... Perth and uh, you know most of the big ones in Australia never never mind everywhere else in the rest of the world and a lot of people kind of knew this was happening fled out of Perth or at least tried to and, and again everywhere in Australia but we're focusing on WA um, and this is now 100 150 years in the future and, and people are trying to rebuild all right nice so no, no major Tassie. it's not a <laughs> Well, uh, we do have a, a Tasmanian team member. We make jokes about, you know, we're going to have to include somebody with two heads and people will think it's amusing, it. but no, it's just a Tasmanian. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if it was even on the map. Like, I don't think people even knew, you know, the, the enemies of Australia even knew that Tasmania existed. So it's probably still, you know, not, not that you would know, but it probably still looks like contemporary Tasmania, which probably looks like. 1950s the rest of australia you know <laughs> no i'm just kidding that that's all for dean baron he's uh one of our team members and he's um he's from tasmania and we rightfully give each other shit about our different uh, our state differences and that kind of thing you uh you would know this but uh three at least three of us on well played are from tassie including myself right on 
So, you only have one you head. Are you sure you are? <laughs> yeah, I had to cut the other one off to uh, to get let in. Right on. No. Um. All right. We'll deviate from from the game for a little bit, and I want to talk about the studio mm. itself. But first, I guess tell us a bit about yourself. Like, uh, you know, you you said that you're from South Africa. You know, why'd you make the journey here? Um, I ha- had a bit of a snoop online, and I saw that you worked in like marketing before. Mm. Uh, before this, but you were in in video games, and I think maybe not vi- video games. So yeah. Um, well, I, I started we off. Yeah, I started off in the mid to late nineties as a freelance journalist, ma- mainly for um, surfing magazines, actually, and then I I got into video game writing as well because I was I was always into games growing up, um, really into surfing as a teenager. And, um, got into freelance writing and, you know, the surfing. That makes sense why you live in Torquay. Yeah, so we got pretty lucky about <laughs> that. Um, so, yeah, got got a few things published, kind of enjoyed it. Uh, being in South Africa, writing for international publications because the rand is not very strong and you make a few Aussie dollars or US dollars or British pounds or whatever and, and the money goes a whole lot further. So I started to expand beyond just surf magazines. Um, you know, what else am I interested in? Well, that's... I got opportunities to write for tech mags and, and a lot of games mags in the UK as well. Um, and then when things started to move more online, I just kind of had to get into the digital marketing side, which, which back then was really like emails and some Twitter and some blogs or websites, that kind of thing. Uh, I moved to the UK in, I think, 2011 or, or you know, late 2011. And I got a job with NVIDIA doing a lot of their digital marketing you know they obviously have the geforce brand and things were tied closely to games and we did a lot of gaming content on the website we did the geforce you know subscriber emails obviously the rest of the tech line as well um and that led to an opportunity with ccp games the icelandic company behind eve online they had a, a position in a studio in shanghai in china to work on dust 514 which was a free-to-play PS3 title. Um, I was there for nine months. Then I was in Reykjavik working on EVE Online for nine months and then back to the UK to work on EVE Valkyrie for about a year and a half. That was the uh, VR launch title almost gee, almost 10 years ago. Uh, and then it was some point in 2016 that my wife was approached by Cotton On actually and got a job to you know work online sorry work for their online store here and we thought okay cool like melbourne melbourne's better than than london that's for sure and then we found out it was in this place called geelong like where's geelong oh cool like that's nice and close to uh that's even closer to to the beach and everything then we found out and it's actually geelong and it's you know it's it's north geelong and torquay's right there and i'd obviously known about bell's beach and everything since forever um couldn't believe it. So I drove around. My wife and I drove around. It was like this, you know, Torquay's 25 minutes drive from her office. We'd way rather live by by the beach. And um, yeah, ended up ended up working from home for a few more years in, in Australia before founding Dropway Bites at the start of 2019. So yeah, it was just one thing very much led to another and honestly couldn't be more happy. Like being able to, you know, I'm, I'm not a citizen yet, but we've both got permanent residence and being able to live in Australia, you, you've won the lottery living in this country. It's, it's beautiful. It's safe. Uh, the economy is great. It's just there's 
there's the opportunities for game development, the state funding, the government funding, uh, the amount of talent, just, you know, the infrastructure here. It is, it is an amazing place to live and it's, it's a really, really great place to work. So, so I guess, because uh, you said that you're a co-founder, so how did uh, you and, sorry, I've forgotten the other Jethro. co-founder's name, but how did um, you two kind of join up to, to make Drop Bear Bites or so, found Drop Bear Bites? Sure. So Jethro and I have known each other since we were, I think, 14. You know, we were in school together, uh, surfing together, you know, stayed friends since forever, been involved in a couple of startups and a few bits and pieces. You know, he's always been on the the finance and economics side and I've always been on the writing or you know journalism brand management marketing side so I have helped him with some other projects I I, I had him work on as a game economist on a, a previous title as well so there was some um, there was some overlap prior to drop it by it's kind of in the professional realm not just as a friendship and I took the idea to him in yeah very early I think it was late December, early January, late December 2018, early January 2019. I said, hey, like, this is, this is what I'm thinking about. Um, you know, he, here's this. I think this is a potential for this type of game now. Uh, he liked the idea and, yeah, we, we kind of poured everything into it in the, in the first half of, of 2019. Started with just two of us. Um, I was looking for, you know, hey, we're incredibly limited budget how can we maximize on that? Who, where's some talented people that we can bring in that will help us what we need? You know, the goal was let's get a demo together. Let's build a brand. Let's get something that excites people that can get us some press. It can get us attention at PAX um, with the goal of going all in on that. And we have to then get investor or publisher funding to complete the game. So we got, um, uh, a composer, a musician from Reddit, you know, through a, through a game, game ads or game classifiers or whatever it was, uh, that ended up being Tim Sunderland, who's done our soundtrack and, you know, been a member of the team going on five years now. Um, that was one of the most incredible lucky finds that he was looking to get into games at the time we were looking to get an audio person for our game. That relationship has just worked great, you know. Uh, I spoke to some people I know in the industry because I wanted to get a really strong concept artist. I wanted to get some uh, visuals that could sell the idea of the brand and what we're going for to our potential writers, to uh, anybody that was brought on the team. We sort of built a brand deck that showed like it's got to feel like this and not like this. It's got these elements of Mad Max 2 and these elements of Mad Max 1. This little bit of The Lord of the Rings and this little bit of, you know, Bad Religion, Punk Music, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, like all these different references. Uh, and, and putting that brand deck together allowed us to, as we brought a new member on the team, like, hey, I need you to do a concept of this location. It needs to evoke these feelings. It must have this and it mustn't have that. And having like a, this brand identity to point towards allowed us to, to get that demo and everything that we wanted. And we, we slowly built the team from just the two of us with an idea to you know, three or four of us, we found an amazing VFX artist, Canadian guy. I saw one of his tweets, a GIF on Twitter, and I DM'd him and I said, "Hey, I really want this in my game. I want you to like, you know, can you do this? Can you do that?" And I think he was nineteen at the time or eighteen, and his his parents didn't buy it. I had to send photos of me like holding the the um, Valkyrie 
box like the you know the playstation <laughs> thing and my linkedin stuff because it's like who's this strange guy contacting our son to work from him from the other side of the world uh some people were word of mouth you know when we did start getting funding we we um would advertise on you know australian job sites some we just put on our blog because the whole team is remote and we've got people working in multiple time zones around the world um and the, the, you know we grew from a couple people with an idea to at the moment, there's there's 15 people in Drop Bear Bytes and obviously a lot of support from Versus Evil, our publisher, who've got a QA team and lo- localizers and you know, translators, video editors, that kind of thing. So yeah, it just, it just slowly grew. We, we took a gamble putting everything on that PAX 2019 demo, uh, press release, website, key art, and hope for the best. And it's, you know, really, really happy that, yeah, like I said, we are three weeks away from launch. It's been been crazy to see it grow to where it is now were you i guess were you always confident that you would you would get um a publisher or or some investment or because i i guess what does the retrospectively i guess what does drop bear uh not drop bear uh, what does broken roads look like now four years later if you hadn't have got that kind of funding or we would have it would have been a a failed venture. It would have been one of the 90 plus percent of startups that don't make it. You know, we, we have had many periods over the last four years where, you know, we have six months without funding. We've had to say goodbye to team members. You know, we've had um, people having to do other freelance work. Tim was, Tim's our audio guy, was mowing lawns so that he could bring some money in. You know, we've, we've really had it. Uh, it hasn't been easy. We have had state funding, you know, um, they were Film Victoria, now Vic Screen, um, have helped us out tremendously. Creative Victoria gave us uh, marketing support and, you know, helped us get to PAX on multiple occasions. Um, but it wouldn't have, you know, it would have failed. Like if we didn't get the investor funding or the publisher funding, it would have been, okay, well, we're putting everything on ice until we can get some money. Thank you, everyone. Sorry, this is, this is the reality of the industry. But we've been through a lot of trials. We've had multiple publishers. We've had periods of like no funding. We've had investors. We've had loans. We've put our own capital in. We've put in a lot of sweat equity, which is, you know, I worked the first two and a half years without getting a cent. You know, it was all um, my time, my own finances, Jethro's uh, initial contribution, some, some friends and family and angel investors and so on, which which some people think, oh, cool, like you get a ton of money. Like, not really. It's actually less money than what you're able to get from Vic Screen or Screen Queensland or that kind of thing. It's just enough to get a concept off. We had we had spent months in pitches. We spoke to over 35 publishers. I don't know how many different investors. Uh, it's not easy. You've got to work super hard. And some people look at success and think, oh, like, it was handed to them. Oh, they got it. Or they had this advantage. It's like, yeah, you don't really see how hard we work for it. You don't see the... The, the 30 rejections for every one, hey, let's have a second call. I mean, we, we've made it to final rounds and then been rejected. Like we've had, we've, it's been tough. Um, but where we are right now is the result of a lot of people's hard work, resilience, um, state and federal funding that believed in us and, and publishers that believed in us, you know. So I, I couldn't name them all now, but we are incredibly, incredibly appreciative of the support we've got. Uh, the team that have given so much and worked so hard to get us here. Um, and, you know, most recently versus evil 
and the resources they put into to funding the final you know 18 months of development providing all the qa and localization support and uh, marketing us around the world i mean we've gone from not knowing how we're going to pay next month's salary you know i don't know 18 months ago to a cover of pc gamer magazine you know features in the biggest publications in the world uh playstation like well played yeah yeah well played <laughs> interviews you know uh playstation including our trailer you know that that kind of stuff xbox or i did xbox showed off the last trailer it's just like it's gathered momentum we're 139th or something this morning on the global wish list on steam like we we we've worked for this and i'm I'll, I'll stand by it it hasn't been an easy journey but very very proud of it and while i wish some things had gotten easy uh, had been easier um i wouldn't change what's happened i've learned so much and grown so much and gotten older and grayer as a result of all this the, the barack obama meme is pretty applicable here uh, but no man we're, we're in a, a good place through through a dedicated team and really hard work I do want to touch on the publisher thing a little bit, and I know you, your lips are pretty much sealed, but uh, you were signed to Team 17 before you were on Versus Evil, and I know that's under lock and key there, but I guess when that kind of fell fell apart or, or you went your separate ways, um, I guess, you know, how did that make you feel? Did you kind of, you know, were you, were you pretty crestfallen and deflated? And um, I guess how... How much mental lifting did you have to kind of do to, you know, to get yourselves back up and go, you know, no, this is a concept that is good. You know, someone else will, you know, definitely cash in here. Um, thankfully, by that point, we had had a lot of media attention. We had um, gained some really good momentum. People knew about this game and, and a lot of people wanted this game. The wish lists were trending really well on Steam um and so obviously it was pretty devastating to go from this is the path we're on and we can just focus on making the best game possible to oh no we're back to where we were more than a year ago 18 months ago back on the pitching grind um quickly got to see what you know how can vic screen help fund us so you know what can we do to to have as least disruption to the team as possible. Um, obviously, we want development of the game to continue, but also we don't want people's lives disrupted. You know, if, if somebody's got to be having sleepless nights and stress and whatever, I'd rather that was Jethro and me than anybody else in this this company, obviously. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was tough. It was really, really hard. Uh, the period between, um, you know, late 20... I'm going to get my years. Yeah, late 21 until early 22 was some of the hardest months uh, of my life. Almost without question, the hardest months of my career. Uh, but I was pretty confident given that other publishers were still reaching out to us because we were with Team 17 for like, I don't know, almost a year before the public announcement that we were working together on the trailer. And during that time, we had more people reach out to us. And we kept a very detailed publisher relations uh, database, which I would recommend any indie does. You know, who were they? What was the 
conversation like who's the contact person when last did we speak to them what were the pros and cons you know and then we we just went back to some of the ones who were interested um and thankfully versus evil were you know they were keen from the outset and they had launched games like pillars of eternity the banner saga uh games that really hit a chord with you know us as players and pillars of eternity 2 is my favorite rpg of like the last 10 years or so um it it really just it took a while but it all fell into place and then once we got the legal shit that you know i can't talk about all dealt with um yeah we we've progressed and we like i said we're in a better place now all of those hardships i have learned from the team have learned from i think a lot of people learned about their own resilience and so on which is critical for any startup but especially in this ultra competitive games industry where you are reading layoff after layoff at the moment you know every every week we are seeing 100 people here 80 people there 90% of the team you know the studio is shutting down this this um, parent company is closing this division of whatever studio uh, it's it's tough and it's hard out there and you can't expect it to be easy and you know we didn't we didn't expect it to be as hard as some months were but yeah we, we're in a good place now I hope people love the end product um, there hasn't been blood but sweat tears gray hairs you name it have <laughs> have been poured into this thing so we'll we'll find out in a few weeks time were there any because you you said that you had about uh, like 30 rejections was there any common reasons why like why publishers weren't keen i mean because you know because i see the game and i go well you know, why would you not want to sign this <laughs> but... uh a lot of them it was very understandably the budget that we needed to launch the game from an unproven team even though individuals on the team have launched multiple products you know i i think i was seven years or i can't even remember right now Six years, seven years in the games industry by then, uh, multiple launches, massive, you know, range of, of, of um, online, single player, multi, you know, all those kind of different genres. We have, um, you know, we got people like Colin McComb on board and he's, he's going on for like 30 years experience. He worked on Fallout 2, Planescape Torment, the Wasteland games. Um, Leanne Taylor-Giles, she's our narrative director. She worked on watchdogs rainbow six you know so the, the the pedigree of the team is really strong but rightly so they were like look this team itself together has not shipped a title that's a big red flag for us also you know your budget is you know a hundred thousand x hundred thousand above our risk appetite given all the red flags or a lot of them were just um you know this this is too far from launch or it's too early because we needed funding without with an early prototype and we had a we had a visual target of where we wanted the game to go and we had a, a strong pitch deck that showed every element of the game the brand the story where you go you know all those kinds of things uh, and people were like we we've signed games that were earlier we've signed concepts whatever but those studios had proven themselves as a studio um, and hey can't, can't fault them for being conservative with with their investments um some wanted us i've mentioned this story a few times to take combat out and basically be the next disco elysium uh because disco elysium launched like the week after we first showed off the game at, at pax 
and it just blew up like like you know like we've all seen and so i think some people wanted the next disco elysium not the next traditional crpg um and we were like that's just not what we're going for we've invested in in combat we do you know combat's not the primary thing about broken roads but it is that kind of rpg um yeah so i, I think it really just came down to the team hasn't shipped a title together or your budget's too high or you're too early in development or um you know who knows there's there's probably some things oh, i didn't like that guy i didn't like the look of him you know whatever that you won't get that kind of feedback um but yeah, it's, it, look, it's a range of it's a range of things. Some some were really disappointing because we got through multiple rounds. But uh, again, sometimes publishers' approval process requires a hundred percent green light consensus, and you might get like five people saying yes and one no, and it's like the jury, and you know, it's a no if there's yeah, it's it's all in or nothing. Um, I have since had people who have left some of the publishers that rejected us being able to tell us, oh, yeah, now I can tell you what we really think or we really thought. And it was just like, they expressed such disappointment. Oh man, like that's one that got away or whatever. It's like, cool. Thank that's That's nice to hear. You know, uh, would have been cool if you'd supported us back then, but uh, we're in a good place now. And you know, we don't, I haven't really, I'm not going to derive pleasure from ha you missed out. Look at us now, but it's definitely, encouraging to know that people are like wow you've you've really delivered on your promise you know we couldn't we couldn't back you at the time but you know what your team have done or you know what your art team everyone's commenting on the way the game looks visually the art team have elevated this game so far beyond where it was when we first showed it off um so yeah we're you know it's, it's been tough the feedback was i think very fair uh and you can't blame people for not wanting to take a risk on a on a startup when there's maybe safer bets out there. How many people have actually contributed to the game? Because I think you said you've got about 15 working for you now. Uh, how many just over the course of the four years or, or five years? So uh, if you include the publishers and the QA teams and that, I mean, it's, it's it must exceed 100 at this point. I'm, I'm not sure because if you think we had uh, people that team 17 and we've had people at versus evil and their um qa operation called red cerberus so that's you know the the extended team is 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 pretty large i think when we last counted because we had to do this for some for something it was about 35 to 40 people in total and now that that includes like a concept artist who provided one image through to you know employees who've been with us for almost five years so all in um you know various writers contributors artists uh voice actors and so on i think that the number totals around 40 and that number is more than double if you include the uh, publisher services so i guess so with broken roads how did the how did you actually come up with the idea to make a game about that? Was it purely moving to Australia and going, this is a, a good canvas to kind of paint with or? Yeah, it was going to be nondescript, you know, this is a post-apoc world, wasn't stated where it was going to be when it was still the road trip game. Um, and then I started, I, I don't know what it was, which exact moment, but it was like, why don't we just do this journey? You know, it's like, we culturally read 
and understand things going from left to right, which is west to east. And at some point I was like, well, look at Australia. Makes sense to start somewhere on the west coast. Okay, Perth. And just it went from there. Um, when I started looking around, because we did a lot of competitor analysis when we were um, you know, doing all the pitching and setting things up in 2019 to build the brand and set us up, you know, how do we sit in a, in a product positioning matrix? What are we like? What are we different? What can be our brand pillars that make us really stand apart? I was really surprised at how, and I still am, few games are based in Australia. Um, how few indie games even are set in Australia. Like when, when it's set somewhere in the world, you know, on Earth as opposed to fantasy world or sci-fi or whatever, um, surprisingly few were set here and I was like, cool, that, that's an angle. Like that's, that's fun. It's interesting. I'm going to learn more about the country. Uh, people seem to, to really go for that element of the game as well. Um, so yeah, I, I don't remember the exact moment, but it was around the time of going from generic post-apoc world to, oh shit, we're building more and more of a story here. You know, even Mad Max is kind of, it's not that it's veered away from being Australian, but Fury Road and all that are not so clearly Aussie anymore. It's like, let's, let's bring it back. There have been some great things done by Australian filmmakers, um, but not really Australian games based in, based in Australia. So we, we filled a bit of that gap. You mentioned just previously that a lot of people have commented on the art style. And, and one of the questions that we've got here is that, uh, that we think it perfectly encapsulates that Aussie outback, but it's got its own flair and style. Um, I guess, you know, how did you go about turning what you've captured, you know, from your photos and your visits to Australia, uh, to Western Australia into what we see, I guess, in the game? From the very beginning, I wanted to try and capture a painterly style. I wanted it, you know, the, the brief was, you must feel like you're playing in concept art um, because so often concept art can look better than you know especially early 3d you know now now game art is just amazing but the thing was let's go for an ultra stylized big brushstroke look like you can have the brushstrokes like don't don't be limited to painting inside the lines like if you want to show a brushstroke that just goes right over the lines of a character or an item in the world just do that you know let's let's make it look like concept art um so i i looked at a few artists i was recommended some actually from a, a friend in Melbourne, um, and found an artist, um, Kirsten Evans, who we brought on to do concept, and she eventually became our, our art director for quite some time. So the art style very closely resembles her own big brushstroke style. Like she, she had a character um, on her art station portfolio that I was like, right, that style, this mood, shared the whole brand idea, um, and she created... Uh, Ella, who is the um, one of the scouts who you meet really early, and, and I got you know, I, here's what Ella must look like. Here is what um, she, you know her her face expression. This is this is the tone. This is what you must get the feel from it, and that became sort of the the starting point for the rest of the art. I then got uh, Amy Smith, who's a a voice actor, to record some of the intro video. Uh, excuse me, some of the intro audio that was put set to some music that Tim put together that was like, right, here's the image of Ella and here is uh, Amy reading Ella, talking about the world 
and this together should really inspire you know the art that you do from here on out as we got different concept artists illustrators uh, 2d artists texture artists so on that all kind of had that foundation of it's got to capture this feel it's got to stay true to this this brushstroke style so back then we were working we had a small internal team and we were working with mighty vertex which is a chinese studio that also worked on the shadow run return series from from hair hairbrain schemes so shadow and returns dragonfall and uh, hong kong and they worked really closely with us to get that brush stroke in their 2d props so the whole game was 2d for like the first I don't know, year and a half, two years, 2D world, 2D props, 2D environments with 3D characters running around, very much like the Shadowrun games. And then it was maybe, again, I'm going to forget the exact date, but probably early 21, I would say, when the art team convinced me that like, hey, we need to move more of this game to 3D. We can do so much more. And the concern was like, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of time. That's that's more budget than we'd ex uh, planned on spending on, on the art side. Can we do this in time? We're going to have to redo so many existing props. But the, the end result is, you know, the game is looking so beautiful. Um, you can do so much more with lighting, shadows, VFX, um, all of that kind of thing. When you've got a 3D world, and 3D characters and 3D objects, you can reuse the props in different ways by changing the, the angle that you view them at and so on. Um, and the texture, texture artists have spent so long on this project capturing that big brushstroke style in the props and the sceneries and the ground layers you know which are still all drawn by hand um that yeah that they've succeeded tremendously in in keeping that original hand-drawn vision which is very simple in 2d as in you know uh, it's easier to do it on a 2d canvas than when you're wrapping 3d around a model and so on but they've they've done an absolutely fantastic job um in, in making the game way more beautiful than I'd ever imagined we, we would when we started the project. Yeah, it looks, uh, it looks absolutely fantastic. Um, that's definitely one of the, uh, like, like when you walk past the booth at PAX, you know, we probably walk past God 50 times. Right. But you always just, you know, have a, have a quick, quick little glance and you know, it's, it, it, it is very eye catching. And, uh, I think you've done a fantastic job with that. Thanks a lot. I'll, I'll another thing, pass that on to the another thing that, sure. that is unique to this game, uh, but not so much the the genre, I believe, is your moral compass system. So you've kind of taken uh, like a feature that exists, you know, in, in kind of locking out players from certain uh, dialogue responses, but you're doing it in a, in a way that is kind of a lot more player friendly. Or like you know, it gives like a lot, a lot more player freedom. Uh, what was the idea behind doing that, rather than you know, if you choose to be an asshole, you're an asshole. You know what I mean? Or if you want to be the good person, you can be the good person. So, um, look, it it actually came out of part of the research, part of the 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 motivating kind of. I told you about the story earlier, and people choosing the. Um, the worst possible ways to react to the challenges that humanity faces. And one of the things I've seen, and this, this was already apparent five years ago, and it's just, it gets worse and worse and worse, is the way people talk to each other on, on social media in particular. Um, Twitter, and with us and against us thinking, and, you know, you, you 
disliked this thing or you said this thing or whatever you you go from a slightly different view to literally hitler you know or you go from this to i i don't know what the, the you know up corollary on the on the far left would be but if you just see this polarizing divisive discourse where people are binary you know they are reduced to um one-dimensional beings when in fact we are phenomenally complex beings and it's possible to hold a lot of the same views as somebody and disagree on some things and not just you know it doesn't mean you disagree on everything else but that's kind of what what it was saying like you you don't think you know whatever let's take brexit because that vote happened just before we moved over you voted to remain in the eu you are this thing you voted to leave you are a racist you know you did this you are a uh, I, I don't even know what, what insults, but it was just like, wow, this is so reductive. This is so harmful for um, relationships. This is, you know, the Trump vote tearing families apart, American families at the dinner table. You hear those stories, you know. Uh, more recently, obviously, the, the voice over here, but that's, you know, four or five years after we designed the moral compass. It was really to go like, look, people are made up of more than just one thing. They don't have one defining characteristic that, you know, you, you, you put the one drop into the water and then the, the glass of water and the whole water, the whole glass goes, you know, cut off color with, with the drop of ink, you know, one drop of this makes you all bad. It's just, this is so reductive. This is so harmful. Um, the moral compass was then, well, what if we had a thing that encompassed a little bit more, like more views, more ideas, uh, there's no right or wrong. There's no good or evil. It is a, a person is the sum of multiple things. And if we create scenarios where somebody's thrust into a situation where under those circumstances, they might do something that at the moment is completely against their values or, you know, in the real world or whatever, they might be able to exercise a little bit more empathy and go, I don't like that someone did that. I can understand they did that because if they didn't, they couldn't feed their family um, I'm not going to paint them as all evil, you know, or this person opposed this one thing that the government proposed because it would, I don't know, harm their, whatever their interests are, you know, maybe let's, let's go with a farmer who's harmed by a policy on no longer being able to export sheep or whatever one of the, the, the people behind the bar and WA were telling me. And so they want to oppose something. And because that's something that they're opposing also, I know this racist person spoke about it or this um, Sky News anchor talked about it. Therefore, they are 100% facsimile of all of the worst characteristics of those people that I despise. And it's just like, how are people so easy to jump to this? Like how to just go from you are a, a human being, individual, you've got all of your complex makeup and all that to just know you're this one thing you've done um, and uh, I've written you off, you know. The moral compass and the story behind the apocalypse were all inspired by that exact same thing of people are far more complex. And it takes a little bit more psychological effort, a little bit more emotional restraint, because it's very easy to demonize, dehumanize and go, cool, whatever, whatever bad thing happens to them, they deserve it because they believe this thing that I disagree with. And so the moral compass is it's. Your worldview encompasses multiple different choices. You have low-level decisions in, in opposing or adjacent quadrants 
that allow you to make larger shifts in, in your quadrant. But the main thing, uh, excuse me, in your worldview, but the main thing was that you have a realistic range of options and it gradually adjusts to your character because events in real life can make you have to do things that when things were comfortable, you, you would never have had to do them. Just like in the game, you will be faced with situations where there is no, like everyone's going to lose here. How do we make it that everyone loses in the least harmful way? Or how can I benefit from everyone losing? Or how can I minimize the harm of everyone losing? And just try and make things a little bit more complex because that's far more reflective of real decision-making in real life. Yeah, I, I think that's what that's one of the, and you've probably heard this from people playing at PAX and other shows stuff that you've demoed the game at, but that's definitely one of the most exciting parts about this game is I really hate when, or, well, dislike, uh, when there's, you know, there's options that I would choose, but they're grayed out because, you know, maybe there's a person there and I've decided I'm going to shoot that person, right? So now I'm just a murderer. So, um, but then, you know, the next time it comes up, you know, I want to choose a different reaction because maybe that story that the person's told me has resonated with me or they've got a child or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's definitely, I think you've got a, a very good system here that will, yeah, like, you know, you'll speak to, you know, five different people and they might all have a very, very different player experience whereas you know yeah so i think yeah i think it's a it's a great it's a great idea yeah cheers look thanks that's that's definitely the goal um was to have that character creation you know you get the six questions and that shapes where you start and then we wanted people to to have something that authentically reflects either themselves they want to play themselves in this world and see how they would handle it or role play a particular character um in the world and one of the things that a lot of people have said you know, just totally what we were going for. Hey, this is this is a nice change on the way Mass Effect did it. Where you know you're between Paragon and Renegade, or obviously the the Star Wars one is easy. Light side, dark side of the Force. There's a little bit more than that. Even that's a spectrum along a line. That's cool. That's that's more nuanced than just these different choices. But expanding another dimension from a straight line between two points to a 360. It's still a two dimensional thing, but you go from having two points uh with a range between them to having 36,000 points because we've got 100 from the zero to the uh, from the center to the outside and 360 degrees around and your worldview gets narrower or broader depending on how many choices you make in the same quadrant or how varied your choices are so we've really tried to make this feel realistic for the player like yep this is these choices would be available to this kind of character that I'm role playing here uh, yeah, and I think I think it's it's going to be a lot more your own playthrough than than say, Drop Bear Bites version of this type of, um, of our character. Yeah, definitely. That's that's one of the things we've kind of said to the writing team the whole way, uh, and the design any anyone designing a quest or so on. Your real world values do not dictate what is the best experience for the player here. You know, we do not reward a good you know, in, in, in quotation marks, play uh, outcome of a quest. We don't reward that more than the completely selfish, uh, most harmful, whatever outcome. Mm. Uh, a lot of a lot of previous games, they did, they, you know, they were, they were forging the way and they, you know, making steps towards this. But more often than not, there was such a clear cut divide between this is the right way, the good option, and you kind of get more gameplay experience or better rewards or better outcomes if you take the good options 
So we've just removed good and bad as concepts and right and wrong as concepts. Um, they obviously still exist and people have their own values, characters in the game, NPCs and people that are important to you and join you on your journey and so on have their own values and will react in different ways depending on what you do. But it is not us as a team saying this is how people should conduct themselves. This is how people should behave. Um, I, I really think the team have done a great job in, in uh, delivering on that. With... Um... So your squad or your gang or whatever it is, it has up to four players? Uh, it's, it's four companions. So it's a party of, of the player character and, and four companions. Um, it starts off you know, at the beginning of the origin stories. You might have one join you, then two, then three. But there comes a point um, not too long into the game where you've got four from a roster of, I think it's six or seven right now. I don't even know how... That number's escaped me at the moment, but I think it's four of seven uh, that you adventure with at any one time. And when you add in the world, can they? Can those uh, companions die, um, and then you lose them for the entirety of the game? Or so yep. no, we've got <laughs> basically when they're in your party, the only way that you that somebody dies is if you all die. Like you know, let's say there's combat, and and at the end of combat. Three people are, are downed of your companions and two are still standing. Then at the end of combat, they will, you know, they'll get up with like one hit point. We, we're just too small a team. We've got too many characters that, that do important things throughout the game. We want reactivity in the mid and late game. Um, so, I mean, is it plot armor? Sure, maybe. But if you all die, like if you and the companions die, it's a game over and you've got to refight, uh, take that battle on again. Um, but we, we just kind of wanted to set it up that the characters that are your companions and members of the convoy, which is, you know, the, the, the supporting NPCs that you don't adventure with, but they, 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 they play a core role. Um, but, you know, players of the game will kind of understand why and how. Um, they're deeply written. They've got, for the most part, got their own arcs. They've got their own interests. Um, and they will respond to minor things, maybe with a little companion interjection. It's like, I don't like that you did that to very major things where it's like, I'm not going to be a part of this or whatever. Um, so sometimes people can leave your party if they're really unhappy with you, then they'll, they can rejoin later, you know? Um, but we, we just thought, again, let's go back to Baldur's Gate. If you have a, an NPC, excuse me, a companion, and that companion doesn't get their personal quest, you know, satisfied after five in-game days, they leave your party and you'll never see them again. Or you've got an evil character and the paladin, one of them leaves and you're never, they're gone from the game. It's like, that's a little bit punishing for players. Like it's understandable, but no, we'd rather, I'd like to have that character back in my party. So we made a decision. Yep, you can piss them off, they can leave, but you can always go and talk to them and bring them back later. How uh, how long is a is an average playthrough of uh, Broken Roads going to take? I know that you've played it for quite a while, <laughs> for quite a bit, so... It's, What's like an average kind of test? I, I think it's, you know, 25 to 30 hours. But it is it is so much about how much of the side content does the player want to do? Are they taking a pacifist route and avoiding combat or running away from combat or taking, you know, planning quests in such a way that they don't have to kill anyone? Um, that all, like, like, let's say you have... 10 combat encounters and they take five to 10 minutes. That's, that's a couple hours that a, a pacifist player might never see or might not experience. 
how much side content do you do? Do you want to explore every, you know, clear the fog of war from every single map or are you a completionist? Are you just doing the main quest? So, you know, we've got some people who are after 30 hours are around the midpoint of the game, but that's doing that trying to do everything. Uh, we've got other people who have finished it in, in way less than 25 hours, but that's because, you know, we've got the test plans and we are beelining it through to the end just to test certain content. But we do see that 25 to 30 hours, you know, you've leveled up quite a bit, you've seen a fair amount of the game, you've chosen which factions to align with, and um, yeah, you know, hopefully a satisfying amount of, of side quests and side content too. Is there a particular play style that the studio is is more popular of? Like, like I guess, what's your... When you've played through the game, do you kind of find yourself going to a certain playstyle? Uh, it's it's it depends on the person, which is really interesting to see. It is exactly what we want. Um, I like a lot of the utilitarian and you know some of the Machiavellian options, and then sometimes the low level nihilist or humanist um, in that moment. But I like the quests and the justifications and the resolutions that those philosophies or those worldviews allow for in a, in a post-apocalyptic world. We've got others who are like 100% humanist and there's a playthrough that works for that. Um, we've got some people who, who try to avoid the combat all the time and others who are playing the combat to death. So it really, I mean, we've got 15 people and probably got 15 different play styles. But the really satisfying thing is that People are taking their time to read it and know the characters and follow the dialogue and like uh, really engage with it. So we're seeing people play it how, you know, the intended way is to take your time and read. You know, you look at Disco Elysium as more than a million words or something and people would slow and reading and engaging before they had full voice acting, uh, engaging with the characters and engaging with the narrative and the story and so on. And that's really what what this game is about is if you try to breeze through it, you're going to miss so much of it. I mean, it's a shitty thing to say, oh, you're playing the game wrong, but uh, you, you're going to be missing out on the, the core thrust of a narrative driven game. If you're not really letting yourself become immersed in this, in this world. Um, so the, the play styles that we see are the most satisfying of those who agonize over, oh man, do I, do I shoot this kid before he shoots me? Do I rush him? Do I try and talk him down? And not just like click the first option and seeing people spend 40 minutes on a 10 minute interaction because they literally like, you see the hands on the head and stuff. That's, that's really rewarding. You know, people that, that have played the game at, at Gamescom or PAX or whatever that, go, um, you know, you really got me into this. I didn't know a game could make me feel this way. That, that's super rewarding. Um, and then the other thing is internally in the team, not every writer knows everything about every other writer's quest. And a lot of the, the artists won't know the details. And when they experience that content for the first time and they say, I, I didn't know what to do here. Or, oh, I love this character. or I hated this moment as in, you know, I hated what this moment made me feel. Um, you go, cool. You know, do you know that you could have done this if you had higher charisma or you could have done this if you were a humanist? And they're like, next playthrough, you know? So, yeah. You've mentioned Baldur's Gate uh, a, f a few times and we've just got the new one this year with Baldur's Gate 3, which is a very horny game. <laughs> How horny uh, is your Australian Outback? Um, not, not very, purely because of 
you know, word count limitations, localization costs, voiceover costs, all those kinds of things. I mean, there are, there are not really romances in the same way that you, that some players like in, in their RPGs. I mean, there is, there is some possibilities. You can sleep with certain characters. You know, there is, there is uh, definitely sex and talk about sex in the game, but we are no Baldur's Gate uh, you can't have sex with drop bears. There's there's just a whole bunch of things that that uh, if you're expecting that you're not going to find it in Broken Roads. We don't shy away from many topics, but it's like, well, we're coming up to our word count limit, and we're going to go over budget. Do we really want to spend a uh, thousand words on a you know a side quest romance or you know charming this person into bed? Or no, let's rather go deeper in one of the philosophical questions we're asking. Yep. Uh- my un well, uh, I guess the CRPG experience is more tailored and more suited to a a PC setup. And you're uh, bringing this game to Xbox on uh, November fourteen as well, yeah. and then PlayStation a bit later, and then I think Switch yeah, after Switch that next year. Yeah. Uh, how I guess how challenging was that bringing it to all consoles, uh, and, and you know were there any sacrifices that you had to make uh, to kind of get the game parody on on all platforms um look we we from the beginning we were like this game's going to launch on consoles it has to be controller friendly it's going to launch day one support on uh, steam deck and uh, xbox controller on on pcs um there's some things that are just i think are just easier because i'm just used to it with a keyboard and mouse you know clicking around in a in, in a isometric perspective click here talking that person you know but we've got some really good proximity based um setup like the game kind of feels not wildly different but it feels a little different on controller because when you get close to something all of the interactables can be highlighted and you you sort of which way is the character focusing or what is the focus on you'll interact with that thing uh the team who have been porting it have got a lot of experience they also worked in the Pillars of Eternity games as well, which play really well on, on console. Um, I played through uh, Torment, Tides of Numenera, start to finish on, on PlayStation uh, to get a feel for what does this kind of game, how, what, what works and what doesn't work with a controller. Um, and I got pretty comfortable with it. I, I still prefer keyboard and mouse because I've been doing that for, I don't know, 30 plus years. But... You know, we've got Xbox dev kits and, you know, we're going to get the, the PS5 test versions and so on. And some of our team prefer console. Uh, Jethro is testing extensively on the Steam Deck. So what do we have to lose? Well, definitely some graphical fidelity on the Xbox One. You have to just bring a few things down uh, from the, the texture size and the memory usage and so on that you can run wild with on on pc and and series x and ps5 we're going to lose even more graphical fidelity on the switch but if you know what you're doing in terms of optimization and texture compression and map sizes and you know a whole there's a whole bunch of tricks that divinity original sin disco elysium the witcher 3 like skyrim if the little switch can handle those games it can certainly handle our um aussie old school crpg um, but no, it's been sort of co-development with console in mind and we, we haven't had to sacrifice too much, you know, thankfully. Were there any ideas or, or features that you wanted 
to have, but you had to kind of leave out uh, because of budget or scope restrictions. Is there anyone that you can share? Yeah, we, we look, we had this idea of, of having books be far more significant in the game than we're actually going to launch um, with. There was this idea of, of reading books over time. So you acquire a book, you choose to read it, you start going through it, and as time passes, you, you know, a quarter of the way through, you unlock this thing and you've got a new dialogue option, or this way you're suddenly convinced by what the book says and your character moves five degrees towards utilitarian, whatever. Um, we designed that, and then a few months later, Disco Elysium's thought cabinet was, was basically identical. I mean, it was just, it was so close in terms of you unlock things over a period, you got all these different choices and, and at the end of it, you've got this kind of outcome that uh, affects your, your character and you can then use a narrative and dialogue later. And it was just like, our design is so close to that. Everyone's going to say we ripped it off. I mean, people are already saying, oh, you know, this is a discolisium like or whatever. Um, that feature was just far too close to what was out there um to to ship as originally designed we, we you know we've also had to throw out entire scenes like we've had locations and story ideas and so on that's like oh we'll we'll just save that for dlc we we can't get in now versus we'll never be able to do that like we've got this location or we've got the story or we've got these things that just yep we've got all the photos we've got all the reference we might even have some concepts it's just not going to make it in um, I'm trying to think what else we've got. Probably, probably some of the overworld exploration. Um, you know, it's, it's been such a, such a journey and we, ha we have had to say goodbye to some ideas. Um, but there are a couple that we're looking to patch in after launch or include in DLC or something like that. So don't want to go too far into that. Um, we're also going to not launch with stealth so because we can't you know i'm, I'm just not satisfied and we're going to put an announcement up on on online soon and probably by the time people listen to this it'll, it'll already be known we're just not satisfied with how stealth feels at the moment there aren't enough satisfying um sneaky areas in the game it is implemented in combat it is implemented in some places but I would rather remove something than have an unsatisfying thing at launch. I want the game to feel like it's launched as a complete product. We never wanted to do early access or anything like that. So things we aren't satisfied with are being pulled completely rather than being shipped in an unsatisfying state. We might patch them in later. We'll almost certainly add more in DLC. Um, but yeah, what, what we've had to say goodbye to is is some of the really scope intensive oh, i imagine we could do this and this and this and have have this relationship and these people respond in that way and um great idea give us another two years another five people you know uh double the qa team and then we can maybe figure out all the permutations um that kind of thing we we did look at a 360 degree moral compass that was thrown away very quickly the complexity of representing you know the, the moral compass on a, a 2d plane with a compass you know 360 degrees you can really do a lot with turning that into a sphere was difficult from a number of reasons so that that idea didn't last more than a few days before we threw it out um and then there was also oh um it came to me now but it's it's gone i i just i think there was different um skills and abilities and things that you could do in the in the tactical combat that you know that that would have been nice but we just don't have the team 
We don't have the size, the scope, the budget to do it. And really, we don't want Broken Roads to be our last game. It's very much our first game. And there's ideas we've banked for for future titles. You touched on early access and another, um, which has been, it's a very helpful uh, launch process or whatever uh, for for some for a lot of indie games but I want to ask about Game Pass and I know that I spoke to you about this at PAX and I just want to know like what are your thoughts on Game Pass and and how would launching on Game Pass help uh, Broken Roads if it was to to ever be a thing and, and would you be interested? Oh, I mean we, we definitely would be interested in Game Pass or PS Plus or Humble Bundle or whatever they're, they're additional revenue streams that we really need one of the advantages for indie studios um, with Game Pass or the like is it can give you a big cash injection prior to launch that can really help. Uh, sometimes it can just help you get across the line and other times with the right deal, it can put you completely in the black that at minimum you break even, uh, which is incredible to launch at break even. Uh, and sometimes you can be in profit before you've even sold a copy on, um, on other platforms. I mean, you look at Starfield, it's a complete outlier, but Starfield was also the best-selling game of September, despite being on Game Pass as well. Um, but again, they're, they're owned by Microsoft. They're a totally different beast. For us, it would have been great. You know, we, we don't, we're not coming to Game Pass as of yet. We're not on PS Plus as of yet or anything like that. Uh, I, I would be totally happy to. I really like Game Pass. Uh, I think that everything is going towards subscription models. The Netflix approach to games, there's such a massive back catalog. You are competing more for people's time and attention than you are for their dollars, really, um, because you're competing with Netflix, with podcasts, with everything that's, you know, the, the full Game Pass library, the PS Plus or the Plus Extra, whatever it is that includes all of those PS4 games. The Humble... Trove, I can't remember what they're called, but but pretty much everyone that has a subscription service, you know, you look at the what Ubisoft Connect, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, it's just like, how do we monetize this massive back catalog of incredibly popular games? Oh, well, we get a really low fee and we offer it for, well, you could buy one of our games for $80 or you can play all of our games for eight months for the same amount of time. Let's hook people in um, that way and hopefully it's it's a good deal for the game developers you know all parties involved uh for us to launch on game pass or ps plus hey you know we might we, we would only take a deal that was satisfying that was like okay this the numbers check out and whatever we lose for exclusivity on i don't know epic store or ps plus um not launching there for three months because that's what the game pass deal is or whatever hypothetical uh, we would only proceed that way if it made sense for us as a studio. And so I, I fully respect smaller studios and indies and whatever who have taken epic exclusives that everyone was like moaning about or hating on them. It's like if, if that's what puts food on the table and keeps the studio alive and lets you launch and keep going, go for it. You know, so ours would be purely informed by what are the needs of the studio right now. Um, Game Pass and I think PS Plus for the most part are are pretty hands off with the developers as long as you pass certification as long as you you know you satisfy like they they might not allow a trophy or an achievement that mentions alcohol or whatever that that's a minor thing to give up you can have all those on steam no problem 
So yeah, we don't have it. We totally would have gone for it if the deal was right. Um, and hopefully the way the wish lists are, are looking on Steam, the fact that we're not on Game Pass or PS Plus now doesn't mean we can't in future, but it, I hope it means we're still shaping up for a successful launch. We'll, uh, we'll, start to, we'll start to wrap it up, but I want to talk just very quickly about some of your earliest memories about playing video games. Like, you know, what were some of the games that you loved playing, uh, growing up? Um, you know, and how did you kind of get that love for, for games? Actually, so I think the earliest memories, I, I think it was Atari VCS or, or 2600. I, I don't even recall I, right now, but it was black and white, uh, like a Formula One, like a racing car game, you know, and Pong, um, literally black and white on a, on a black and white TV. Uh, I don't even know, three years old, four years old, whatever. And then I, we had a, a cafe on the corner of our street that had a couple of arcade machines. Um, I could even look up the names of like one, one was you were a scuba diver on, um, the other one was, uh, geez, I mean, this was, this was a few years later. We had golden ax, but that was quite a few years later, double dragon, um, pinball, whatever it was. And it's just, I was blown away by these games. It was just, you know, looking at these, these, games in, in the 80s these enthralling worlds excitement this you know different kind of toy and then when we got a pc at home i think it was late 80s early 90s and the king's quest games and space quest games were available and it's like this is unlike anything i've ever seen like my friends have a nintendo and mario goes left to right and you can jump and you can do this but he's on a set path but king's quest you can go in any direction you can go on any screen you can type in look you know, get, get brooch, look in tree, open door, like you can walk around freely. This is incredible. And the graphics were terrible, but at the time it was amazing. And then I discovered role-playing games, uh, in particular the Ultima games, which were the same thing. This is massive world you can explore, people you can talk to, you can go in any direction. The, the Ultima games had the virtues as a major part of the story and the quest and everything else. That spurred an interest in philosophy in me from like early teenage years that kind of has persisted through the rest of my life and influenced what I studied at university and what I dedicated years to um, so yeah it was it basically was just the progression of seeing different kinds of games and, and I was always more drawn to the, the the worlds that you can lose yourself in than the the action games I mean, it can be fun blasting a level of call of duty or whatever but those games where you could lose yourself in for hours, especially as a, as a teenager, we've got all those hours to lose. Um, that's really what, what drew me in. And I, I, you know, progressed from the Ultima games to the Fallout games, to Baldur's Gate series, to, you know, Skyrim and uh, Pillars of Eternity and, and Disco Elysium and all that. Like there's, there's a really great lineage, you know, titles like Planescape Torment that are still spoken about how many years later, 20 years later. Um, yeah, th those were the games that, you know, you can kind of trace that, that story of, of, of not only did I love playing them, but they really are part of Broken Roads DNA as well. Yeah, nice. If you, do you think if you, well, sorry, if you weren't uh, making video games, what do you reckon you'd be doing with yourself? Uh, look, I'd probably still be, I'd probably still be doing journalism or freelance writing of some kind. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what, because when print media, you know, the death of print media really started, 
was the time that I transitioned into the games industry. So I don't know what online content I'd been creating. I, I don't even know uh, what kind of institution I'd be working for. If I would have hung up my hat there and gotten some kind of other job, I, I absolutely don't know. But I, I would imagine it would be something writing related because I started earning a living doing that so long ago and that kept me going before moving into this industry. Um, I could only imagine that I would have been carrying on with that. All right, a couple last quick ones. Uh, what are you most looking forward to for players to... Uh, sorry, uh, what are you most looking forward to seeing players experience when uh, Broken Roads does release? I'm looking forward to players talking about it on forums or Reddit or socials or whatever and saying, hey, I like this happened here. This was so cool. And somebody's like, I didn't see that at all. I had this experience. You know, I had this. Did you know that there's this little thing? Um, Australians getting super excited about the Easter eggs. Uh, Fallout or post-apoc fans recognizing the pop culture references or, or post-apoc media references, you know, those kinds of little Easter eggs that we've peppered the whole game with. Um, little secrets or the very, very rare, you know, we've got some things that most players will encounter then, oh, if you do this quest, you'll encounter this. Then we've got some things that are like this variable and this variable and this character and whatever, incredibly rare little sequences that probably most players won't ever see, but those that are really paying attention or playing in a particular way will get what we hope will be incredibly satisfying callbacks or moments or references or unique things because the writers took such care to go, okay, this moment and that moment and that character together, 10 hours later, let's have this thing happen. Um, and when people discover those and the kind of joy and you know happiness, like we, one thing that, that I was mentioning about the Australians that I just saw one of the streamers playing or testing the game at PAX was um, when you're picking up manure as a jackaroo, uh, the first bit goes slip and then it goes slop and then it goes slap. And, you know, she was so stoked when she saw slip and slop. She's like, give me a slap, give me a slap. And she picked up the third piece and it did. And she was like raising her hands and just stoked. So, so those kinds of reactions that if you're an American player, it doesn't mean anything, cool, whatever, move on to the quest. If you're an Australian player, you're like, what a cool little little nugget there, you know? What advice would you give to anyone sort of starting out or wanting to get into game development? So into like getting your first job in the games industry or starting a studio? What kind of? Uh, I guess both, I guess, you know, like if, you know, you wanted to start a, a studio or, you know, get into indie dev and just start making a game. So getting into it is it's it's honestly never been easier to make games like you need an internet connection and largely to to be able to read or understand english because of how much learning materials but a lot of that is being translated now but basically with an internet connection and a semi-decent computer you can run unity or Godot or unreal uh, you can access so many free learning materials online as well as well as paid courses which you know there's a lot of really good ones out there um and just take your time with it basically it, it, it can't be rushed you know people think oh like you you just started a studio you know cool how lucky it's like well no i actually was writing about games building up uh industry contacts building up pr contacts working from pretty junior positions through to different areas and multiple studios engaging with 
everyone from QA through to the executive producer to the marketing team to, to fans and players and, and all that kind of thing along the way, really absorbing and paying attention and bringing all of those different things that we'd seen and still knowing, okay, I've got these shortcomings. I don't know anything about this. So I know nothing about 3D modeling or you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at writing dialogue or whatever it is. We need to get those people to fill those gaps. That's if you're fully starting a studio. Uh, my point is that you, you can't really rush it. You know, have a little bit of humility, take your time, learn the tools. Uh, and it's like, what is your goal? Are you just having fun and learning game dev and, you know, put a free game on itch and what that's great. Are you trying to make a commercially viable product? And if you are, then, then the, then the requirement list changes completely from you, you can't just make what you want and your hobby game, you chuck it on Steam and hope that it's a success. Like you really have to analyze the market. You have to look at trends. You have to see what's popular. Um, there's so many more steps if you want to do this as a business. But if you're just you know, trying to make a game for fun, it's really easy. Get going. You might learn stuff that later you can, be a, you can apply if you start to get more serious. Um, and you know, for graduates or, or youngsters or, or people changing careers that want to get into game dev, the, the easiest path is um, generally you know, starting at, at uh, you know, the QA thing or at the a junior role if you have a specialization that you're into. Say, um, I want to do VFX. I'm going to look for a big studio that's maybe going to give me a, a junior VFX role or I want to be a composer. I don't have any industry experience. I might have to get some portfolio pieces together with a studio on a game that might never launch or it might only ever make it to a YouTube video, but at least I've got something and you slowly start building up your SoundCloud or whatever. Um, I would say just work at, work at a specialization, understand the other areas of the, you know, understand what a program is talking about, understand what a, designer is talking about understand you know the language of these other departments even if you don't ever plan to work in them you're gonna to have to be able to communicate with them um, and then really think about what your your goals are and again if your goal is to make a commercial product accept that you're gonna to have to sacrifice some of your vision and some of your art to to satisfy the market and get people to pay for it nice uh, all right very very last one for you so what's next for the studio after Broken Roads? Are you, are you, would you like to do another CRPG or is there something that you would like to tackle that's completely different or you haven't even thought about it yet? No, we've, we've already got plans. We've got concepts uh, for what we are doing next. We are going to keep it very tightly under wraps for a while. We are going to support Broken Roads for quite a few months to come. You know, Despite having months of QA and polish and whatever, somebody's going to break something on the first day and we're going to have to react to that. Uh, someone's going to find some combination of events that crashes on the PlayStation and we're going to have to fix that. We're going to, you know, we want to do post-launch support with additional content. Um, we want downloadable content. We, you know, we, there's a lot more stories to tell in the world of Broken Roads. So that's going to that's gonna happen for, for quite a few months while we enter pre-production of our next uh, secret title, which we've actually done the groundwork of designed for probably over a year now yeah it's october over a year now um and we know the direction we want to go um it's it's going to be a bit of a departure from post-apoc australia um but when we're ready 
to talk about and show it off we'll we want to do that with a bang and you know you'll you'll know much more about it then sounds exciting very nice well craig thank you so much for your time amazing to have you on and chatting about drop bear bites and broken roads and it's launching November 14, uh, Steam, yes. Epic Games? No, not Epic. Uh, we, we'd like to be on Epic. We will be, um, just if that's ready on time, it's going to be on GOG and Steam um, and Xbox. And as soon as we're able to announce a PlayStation date, we will, like whenever we're confident with that, we would like it to be this year. We're just not going to say anything until we know, cool, this is the date. Uh, and Switch will be early next year. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Best of luck for the for the launch. Uh, I think you've got something special here, so I hope that that translates into a big success for you and we have many more years of drop bear bites and whatever you come up with. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for your time. And if uh, people want to check out yourself, the game, the studio, what's the best place to, to go to? Uh, brokenroadsgame.com. That's got a, a bit of info, links to all of our socials. We've got Discord. You know, everyone's welcome to come in and talk about the game or talk about the, you know, we've got off-topic things. We've got the studio, we've got whatever. So that that link is on our um, website as well. Then, of course, we're on, on Twitter with the same links to our, our social media. Um, yeah, and obviously this, the Steam community is is actually pretty large as well. So the, there's a, the forums around the community hub on Steam is another place people can check it out. Um, so yeah, thank, thanks very much. And thanks for the opportunity to, to talk about Broken Roads. And, you know, you guys have been following us and, and talking about us and, and uh, featuring us for, for years now. So yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. It's been, been fun chatting about it and, you know, looking back over how many years it's been. Um, so thank, yeah, thanks for the opportunity and thanks for having me on. Perfect. No worries. Uh, well, you can check out all the content uh, with Craig and Drop Bear Bites and Broken Roads on www.well-play.com.au. And maybe something a little special coming in the near future. But uh, we'll share that when it uh, happens. Uh, thank you and we'll see you next time.